0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Greetings. It is wonderful to have you with us today. I'm Joel Hilliker. Children are our future. Parents and educators who recognize this work hard to bring them up properly to transmit civilization to them. There are also some people with evil intent who go after children in an effort to control the future. Think of Hitler's youth. Think of leftists in America today forcing their ideology on young children. And think too of Vladimir Putin and his war in Ukraine. In our first segment, we'll hear a report from trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques about Russia sending large numbers of teachers into Ukraine to indoctrinate children with Russian propaganda and also deporting Ukrainian children to Russia where they can be re-educated. This is one battlefront among many in this war that exposes the true nature of the Putin regime. In our second segment, we'll talk with trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic about tensions rising between Turkey and Greece, and analysts concerned that a second European war could break out. We'll look at the causes and what Bible prophecy says about this. In our third segment, tomorrow marks 160 years since Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation during the American Civil War changing the legal status of over 3.5 million slaves in the Confederacy, making them free, will be reminded of this remarkable history in a report from trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau. And I'll conclude today's show by sharing some lessons from a father who helped build a president. Let's start by looking at Russia's indoctrination campaign using the children of Ukraine in this report from Jeremiah Jacques. <music>
1: If we go back to late February, just days after Russia had dramatically escalated its war of aggression against Ukraine, there's a set of teaching materials that was sent out to teachers throughout Russia at that time. This was a series of government-issued manuals and supporting materials that told the teachers exactly what to teach to their students about what was happening between Russia and Ukraine. The main points of these government-issued manuals are that Ukraine didn't exist until the 20th century and never should have been separated from Russia. The United States orchestrated a violent coup inside Ukraine in 2014 and installed an American puppet government there. And after some in Ukraine's eastern Donbass declared independence from this U.S. puppet regime and allegiance to Moscow, then some Ukrainians who were Nazified and often addicted to drugs, spend eight years trying to murder them all. Those were the main talking points in these manuals. And the manuals also stressed that Russia's new campaign is not a war with Ukraine, but only a special peacekeeping operation that Russia is waging to safeguard people who have been subjected to bullying and genocide. These are all lies and they're easy to disprove, But they were the main points that those teachers across Russia were told to teach to their pupils. And these lessons were generally presented within the broader Russian argument that Russia is a victim. A victim that the West is perpetually and unfairly against and that the West has never treated with warranted respect. And then that broader Russian argument also says America's number one goal is to destroy Russia, and it's using Ukraine as sort of a pawn toward that end. So that's the big picture Russian view, and it is a toxic brand of geopolitical victimhood that is demonstrably false, but it's also as addictive as the drugs that the Russians accuse Ukrainians of being fueled by. So that's what young Russians are being indoctrinated with. For most of Putin's 22 years in power, he's been suppressing Russia's press, rewriting aspects of history, and mandating curricula in his nation's schools. And this means from cradle to grave, Russians are taught this outlook. And the result is that the majority of them see Ukraine and the world the way Putin does, and they support him. They support this war of aggression, and it means many of them are prepared to fight and even die in the war. And now it has come to light that Putin's Russia is not content to teach this warped worldview just inside of Russia. Authorities in Moscow confirmed on September 13th that significant numbers of Russian school teachers have been sent to occupied parts of Ukraine in recent weeks. And there, they are tasked with indoctrinating Ukrainian children with that same Russian propaganda. One Russian government document listing 173 of such teachers was leaked by the Napalm website. It said the educators would arrive in Ukraine on September 1st and remain for a quote, considerable duration to teach children. The Napalm website explained that they were publishing the names of the teachers so that the teachers would be, quote, aware of their responsibility for aiding the occupation of Ukrainian territory and brainwashing Ukrainian children." End quote. So it is true that these teachers, these Russian teachers are guilty of propagating dark deception, but being called out for it is unlikely to bother these Russian teachers because the facts show that they are zealous about indoctrinating Ukrainian children with their nation's warped worldview. One of the teachers who signed up to move to occupied Ukraine is Andrei Chetvertkov from Alista. In an interview with Novoya Gazeta, he said, quote, I volunteered as a patriot and I will teach according to the Russian school program. After all, from time immemorial, smaller Russia, which means Ukraine, was a part of the russian empire konstantin Matyukov is a history teacher from omsk russia who was also among those who volunteered before his departure he was quoted by local media as saying quote, i am going not only to teach children but also to carry out extracurricular patriotic work as well as to help our peoples get closer. After all, there can be no division into Russians and Ukrainians because we are one Russian people." End quote. This one Russian people doctrine, it is a central tenet in Putin's justification for this war. So these teachers, they're very clearly on board with this propaganda campaign and they are determined to fill the heads of young Ukrainians with this drivel. And now over a hundred Russian school teachers, such as Andrei Chetverkov and Konstantin Matyukov, have been deployed to Ukraine to teach that and other aspects of Russia's toxic ideology to tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian children. Eastern Europe expert Sergey Somleny wrote about the teachers on September 12th, and he pointed out that on the surface, Russia sending these Russian teachers into Ukraine may not seem important, especially compared to the thousands of tanks and missiles that the Russians are also sending into Ukraine. But it is actually a ruthless part of Russia's overall campaign. He wrote, the teachers are part of the Russian war machine, Exactly as the Russian soldiers, these people come to Ukraine with their hate against Ukrainians." Somlini also pointed out that as part of these same efforts, Russian occupiers have forcefully gotten rid of Ukrainian teachers so that they can fill those slots with the Russian brainwashers. He wrote, What happened to the Ukrainian teachers? There are many reports on how Russia kidnapped Ukrainian teachers, tortured them, even killed them." Quote. And then he pointed to one well-documented case of a Ukrainian school teacher being murdered by Russian troops in the Chernihiv region. Simlini also published some protocols that were issued to Russian soldiers, ordering them to destroy Ukrainian books, including textbooks. Vladimir Putin's regime wants these all to be destroyed so that only their version of events can be taught, so that all those young Ukrainian minds can be sculpted to conform with their warped worldview. Meanwhile, since February 24th, Russian forces have also forcibly deported hundreds of Ukrainian children into Russia itself, where they're being indoctrinated into that same warped version of truth. Ukraine's ombudsman for human rights, Lyadmyla Denisova, spoke about this profound tragedy on national television recently, and she said, quote, "When our children are taken out, they destroy the national identity, deprive our country of the future. They teach our children there in Russia the history that Putin has told everyone." End quote. Putin's efforts to brainwash young Ukrainians is deeply disturbing and it gives insight into his broader ambitions. He would like to eventually control the narrative, not just in Russia and Ukraine, but throughout all of the old Soviet space and beyond. His ambitions are wicked beyond words, and they indicate a dark future for Russia, Ukraine, and the world. And when the current trends are placed alongside Bible prophecy, that indication becomes a certainty. The Bible warns that a great alliance of nations will arise from Asia in the modern era. Revelation 16.12 calls this power the kings of the east. And Revelation 9.16 says this military mammoth will have an army of 200 million men. The Bible provides several key details about this largest army ever assembled. Matthew 24, 21 through 22, and Daniel 11 and 12 make clear that this alliance will be one of the primary belligerents in a nuclear World War III. So this really has implications for all people. And then Ezekiel 38 shows which specific nations will contribute troops to this mega army and it says that it'll be led by one country and one individual. Verse 2 in the King James Version associates this man with Gog and the land of Magog, and it calls him, quote, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Bible scholars generally agree that Gog refers to Russia, and that the land of Magog includes the vast area where modern-day China is located. And then Meshach is related to the modern Russian spelling of Moscow. And Tubal indicates the Russian city of Tobolsk, to the east of the Urals Mountains. And then there is another name for all of Russia that lies somewhat covertly in this passage. The King James Version quoted a moment ago renders the Hebrew word rosh into English as the adjective chief as in chief prince but trump editor in chief gerald Fleury says that the accurate translation would render it as a proper noun rosh which is an ancient name for the people who became known as russ or russia so the identity of this prince of russia moscow and tobolsk begins to take a clear shape the listing of all three names confirms that this is one man presiding over all the various peoples across Russia, from west to east. And then the mention of Magog there shows that this man's leadership goes beyond the borders of Russia and into China. Verses 5 and 6 of Ezekiel 38 mention ancient names for the peoples of such nations as India and Japan as well, showing that these countries will also lend their military power to this Russia-led alliance. Mr. Fleury says that when these Bible passages are studied alongside current events in Russia, the identity of this Prince of Russia becomes clear. In the September 2014 issue of the Philadelphia Trumpet, he wrote, I strongly believe Vladimir Putin is going to lead the 200 million men army. Just look at the power he already has. Can you think of any other Russian politician who could become so powerful and have the will to lead Russia into the crisis of crises? I see nobody else on the horizon who could do that." By the time he wrote his booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, in 2017, Mr. Flurry was still even more certain that Putin would personally fulfill this role. He wrote, His track record, his nationality, and his ideology show that he is fulfilling a linchpin Bible prophecy. The time frame of his rule also shows that nobody else could be fulfilling the Ezekiel 38 prophecy. It is clear that a bleak future is coming for Russia, Ukraine, and the world, but Mr. Flory says the fact that this Prince of Russia is now on the scene shows that the most hope-saturated event in mankind's history is now near. He writes, Vladimir Putin is a sign, literally a sign, that Jesus Christ is about to return. This is one of the most inspiring messages in the Bible. What we are seeing in Russia ultimately leads to the transition from man-ruling man to God-ruling man.
0: This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. As the war rages in Ukraine, there are warning signs that another war could erupt on Europe's periphery in a different theater, as we will now learn in this report from Mihailo Zekic.
2: Europe is currently fixated on the war between Russia and Ukraine, and rightly so. This is the biggest conflict Europe has seen since the Second World War. But this isn't the only contention right now simmering on Europe's eastern fringes. Tensions are also fraying between Greece and Turkey. Many in the media are wondering if war could soon break out between Athens and Ankara. Is the prospect of war in the eastern Mediterranean serious? Could Europe see a second major war on its eastern border? What is causing the escalation between Ankara and Athens? These are serious questions. Ukraine belongs to no major alliance, but both Greece and Turkey belong to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which includes most of Europe, the United States, and Canada. Greece is also a member of the European Union. A war between Greece and Turkey would drag the rest of Europe down with them. Turkey also hosts American nuclear weapons, as do EU member states Germany, Italy, Belgium, and the Netherlands. France, meanwhile, has nuclear weapons of its own. The possibility exists of NATO being irreparably divided in a nuclear exchange between member states. Greece and Turkey have a history of warring with each other for hundreds of years. Especially during the past two centuries, after Greece became independent from the Ottoman Empire in the early 19th century, they have intermittently fought each other, over the lands of the eastern Mediterranean. They almost went to war to control the island of Cyprus in 1974. Those old quarrels won't be going away anytime soon, but the stakes are so much higher now. And this is all what is making so many nervous. If Greece and Turkey have such a long history of fighting each other, who's to say they won't start another one soon? What is causing the current tensions? Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has accused Greece of militarizing some of its demilitarized islands in the Mediterranean. The Greek government rejects this charge. Your occupying the islands does not bind us, Erdogan said in a September 3 speech. When the hour comes, we will do what is necessary, he said. Erdogan threatened to Come down suddenly one night, his words, against Greece. Three days later, while visiting Bosnia and Herzegovina, Erdogan doubled down on his threat. What I'm talking about is not a dream, he said, according to the Associated Press. If what I said was that we would come one night all of a sudden, it means that, when the time comes, we can come suddenly one night. They have bases on these islands, he said. If illegitimate threats against us continue based on them, our patience has a limit. Athens is taking this threat seriously. Its foreign ministry sent letters to the EU, the United Nations, and NATO about Erdogan's comments. Foreign minister Nikos Dendias wrote that the Turkish president's words were unprovoked, unacceptable, and an insult against Greece and the Greek people. Dendias asked for the organizations to intervene. By not doing so in time or by underestimating the seriousness of the matter, he said, we risk witnessing again a situation similar to that currently unfolding in some other part of our continent, referencing the Ukraine war. What is behind Ankara's recent saber-rattling? Turkey has a presidential election next year. Erdogan has been ruling Turkey with an iron fist since 2003. Elections in modern Turkey have become little more but rubber stamps to legitimize his reign, but they are still held, and the results of some recent ones suggest Erdogan's grip on Turkish politics is slipping. For example, both Istanbul, Turkey's economic center and largest city, and Ankara, the capital, had opposition mayors elected in recent years. Erdogan could be trying to manufacture a crisis to boost his popularity. A survey by Turkish Polling for Metropole suggests 51.1% of Turkish citizens think Erdogan's rhetoric is electioneering. Here's a quote from former Pentagon employee and analyst Michael Rubin. He wrote the following for the news service 1945, quote, Erdogan rose to power two decades ago, using the backdrop of widespread dissatisfaction with inflation, the Turkish lira's weakness, and the corruption of the ruling elite. Today, inflation surpasses 80%. The Turkish lira has lost more than 80% of its value over the last five years, and Erdogan and his family have, unexplained by any legal means, become billionaires. Because Erdogan has exercised dictatorial control over Turkey and ousted, Jailed or marginalized any effective opposition, he cannot shirk responsibility for Turkey's dire straits. Instead, he seeks a crisis to distract, quote. Rubin claims that all this makes Turkey more likely to attack Greece. Seizing Greek islands and daring Athens to act would be the perfect diversion, he wrote. But what provoking all of Europe, a nuclear Europe, to war make Erdogan popular with voters? Getting Turkey embroiled in a conflict with its much bigger next-door neighbor is a good way to become unpopular. Erdogan had a coup attempt against him in 2016. Turkey has the second-largest military in NATO after the United States. It's doubtful he'd want to give the military any excuse to oust him. An unnecessary war with a nearby military powerhouse would be a pretty big excuse. Erdogan might hope that seizing a few small islands, so to speak, would be minor enough that Europe would seek a diplomatic solution rather than a military one. Then Ankara could have its cake and eat it too. But remember that Russia literally launched an invasion of Ukraine only a few months ago. There is literally war ravaging on the European continent in an attempt to revise countries' borders. If Europe doesn't step in to protect Greece, EU member states like Estonia and Latvia that only recently broke away from Russia's orbit and would in no means be able to defend themselves by themselves against Russia would be sitting ducks. Brussels cannot afford to let any kind of minor incursion happen. Erdogan knows this. He may be bold to try anyway, but this is extremely unlikely but there's a bigger reason why Europe and Turkey fundamentally won't become enemies in the near future. Bible prophecy says Europe and Turkey will actually become allies. They technically already are through NATO. Anchor, a threatening war against Greece, shows that Turkey at this point is NATO in name only, however. But the Bible prophesies that Europe and Turkey are about to become much closer partners than they are now. The relevant prophecy is in Psalm 83. The psalmist writes of a mysterious alliance of nations who fight that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance, as it says in verse 4. This isn't referring only to the state of Israel in the Middle East. Prophetically, the name Israel refers to the descendants of the lost ten tribes of Israel, chiefly the English-speaking peoples today. For more information please request a free copy of The United States and Britain in Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong. Verses 5 to 8 read, For they have consulted together with one consent, they are confederate against you, the tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites, of Moab and the Hagarines, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asser also is joined with them. Such an alliance of peoples for the express purpose of wiping out Israel has never existed, neither in ancient nor modern times. The implication, then, is that this refers to a yet-future alliance. But the names of these peoples are meaningless unless one knows their modern identities. Here's a list the Trumpet consults regarding these peoples' modern identities, as provided in Chapter 2 of our Editor-in-Chief Gerald Fleury's booklet, the King of the South. Quote, Here are the modern names of these nations as taught at Ambassador College under Herbert W. Armstrong. Edom, Turkey, Ishmaelites, Saudi Arabia, Moab, Jordan, Hagarines, anciently dwelt in the land known as Syria today. Gebal, Lebanon, Ammon, also Jordan. We cannot be extremely precise in this understanding, but it gives a good general idea. End quote. Asser, or the Assyrians meanwhile, are the ancient ancestors of modern Germany. Greece isn't mentioned in this prophecy, but Germany is the EU's most powerful country and the unofficial leader of the bloc. Any war with Greece would almost certainly drag Germany into it. Therefore we can use Germany to represent all of the European Union. Crucially for our purposes, in Psalm 83, Turkey is shown to be a partner with Europe. The prophecy shows that Europe and Turkey will consult together with one consent and be confederate against their enemies. Verse 3 discusses Berlin and Ankara having crafty counsel, intimate backroom dealings with each other. The word joined in verse 8, according to Gesenius' Hebrew Chaldea lexicon, can mean to adhere To be joined closely to anyone. This implies a level of trust and cooperation that wouldn't exist if Europe and Turkey got involved in a bloody war with each other. It remains to be seen how all this will play out. Erdogan is an incredibly unpredictable leader and could do something unexpected in the months and years ahead. But the Bible says we can expect Turkey and Europe to get closer rather than further from each other. Therefore, Ankara turning into Europe's enemy is unlikely. To learn more, request a free copy of Mr. Fleury's booklet, The King of the South.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Zekic. So this prophesied relationship between Europe and Turkey is interesting and it's complicated. Uh, From Europe's standpoint today, why do they need Turkey as a friend?
2: Well from a purely geographical perspective, Turkey is at the crossroads of the world. It's uh, where Europe meets, meets the Middle East. It controls the Bosphorus Strait, which controls Russia's axis, the Mediterranean Sea. It has a very, very vital uh, geopolitical significance just from its geography. And its importance is demonstrated by this link between Europe and the Middle East. For example, Turkey actually houses over 4 million refugees, according to EU estimates. Most of them are from Syria, Mm -hmm. um, which is, of course, borders Turkey. And it's only by Erdogan's good graces that he doesn't open the floodgates and let all those refugees into Europe. He's threatened to do that before, but to host 4 million like that is, I guess you could say, generous on his part. So from a purely geographical perspective, that's why Turkey is important to Europe and also... It has the second largest army in NATO. As I just mentioned, it controls Russia's access to the Mediterranean. It's a good buffer for Russia. It's sometimes Turkey sometimes flip flops between siding with Russia and siding with Europe. But Europe wants Turkey to be in their block as much as possible as a counter to Russia.
0: Yeah, these uh, these levers that Turkey has at its disposal have forced European leaders in a lot of cases to put up with a lot of misbehavior or, or uh, behavior on Erdogan's part that they would rather distance themselves from, but they've, they've been pretty uh, consistent about just uh, allowing him to, to uh, quite a lot of latitude to act as he thinks is best. He's been in power for a long time, Erdogan. Uh, he's really transformed Turkey in a lot of ways. What do you think the likelihood is with Turkey's upcoming president ele- presidential election? Uh, that we'd actually see a change in leadership?
2: Well, I'm not completely certain. Erdogan has transformed Turkey into an authoritarian dictatorship, but elections for the presidency or for the local level are still held. A few years back, both Istanbul and Ankara voted in mayors from the opposition, which Erdogan vehemently didn't like, but there wasn't much he could do about it. So it shows his grip seems to be slipping a little bit. As far as Bible prophecy goes, um, I mentioned Psalm 83 in my segment. Uh, another prophecy uh, that covers Turkey is Obadiah, the book of Obadiah. And I mentioned specifically that Turkey would side with Germany in backstabbing the nations of Israel. And we've written a lot about this, referring to it as a betrayal specifically. And it wouldn't be a betrayal per se if Turkey was already untrustworthy. He's, uh, his flip-flopping between NATO and Russia and Islamists is uh, pretty uh, – uh, com- uh, well known and he even uh, sponsors uh, militant groups in Syria that fight against American sponsored militias in Syria too so he's already showing himself he's not he- he's actively sponsoring an enemy of America so w- we'll see what happens in 2023 but um, Obadiah sounds like that there would be a government in Ankara that Israel would immediate would trust at first mm. so Who knows? Maybe that means that there'll be a more moderate person coming into Turkey or not, but we'll see.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting to consider. We've been talking with trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic about tensions rising between Turkey and Greece. You can watch for his article at thetrumpet.com. Will Turkey and Greece go to war? Thanks so much. Thank you. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. We'll look back now at some inspiring history from the middle of a dark time in America, the Civil War. One man made an incredibly bold move to advance the cause of freedom, as we will now hear in this report from Abraham Blondeau. The year
3: 1862 was a series of unmitigated disasters for the North during the Civil War. With more men and resources, the Army of the Potomac led by General George McClellan utterly failed to defeat the Confederate forces led by General Robert E. Lee. President Abraham Lincoln was desperate for a victory as the fate of the Republic hung in the balance. With each passing day, he watched more and more young men die at the hands of their brothers in the bitter struggle. In the middle of this disastrous year, President Lincoln made a decision that completely revolutionized the war. On September 22nd, 1862, President Lincoln officially presented the Emancipation Proclamation, which declared all slaves in the southern states as free. This changed the war from saving the Union to freeing the slaves. It also restored to the Constitution the sentiment that all men are created equal. This happened 160 years ago tomorrow. It is an important opportunity to reflect on a momentous event that ensured we enjoy freedom today. It was no secret that President Lincoln was opposed to slavery. For years before the Civil War started, President Lincoln spoke eloquently against slavery and saw it as a sin against God. But as President, Lincoln was handicapped by a decision by the Supreme Court made years before. The infamous Dred Scott case, where a Southern slave traveling through the North uh, escaped and claimed that he was free because he was in Northern Territory, had enshrined slavery in the Constitution. Chief Justice Taney and the court were dominated by Southern Democrats who wanted to protect slavery as an institution. It remains the worst decision in the court's history and took a bitter civil war to overturn the decision. Because of the Dred Scott case, the president could not uh, proclaim slavery to be illegal. It would take an act of Congress in order to achieve the abolition of slavery. However, in the midst of multiple military defeats in 1862, an opportunity presented itself to the president to move forward on the issue of emancipation. In July of 1862, the Union was defeated at the Battle of the Seven Days, Uh, where McClellan failed to defeat Lee, and then soon afterwards, in August, General Pope was defeated by General Lee again at the Battle of Second Manassas. After these two defeats, President Lincoln received intelligence on how the South were using slaves in military capacities, such as cooks, uh, digging earthworks, supplying ammunition, uh, different things that made them vital to the effort of victory for the rebels. This proved to be the opening Lincoln needed. In the book Team of Rivals, Doris Keenan Goodwin writes, Seen in this light, emancipation could be considered a military necessity, a legitimate exercise of the president's constitutional war powers. The border states had refused his idea of compensated emancipation as a voluntary first step, insisting that any such action should be initiated in the slave states. A historic decision was taking shape in Lincoln's mind. Quote. It was soon after this that Lincoln read his first draft of the proclamation to his cabinet and it was then that sec- the Secretary of State suggested that Lincoln wait until a military victory to announce the proclamation to the public. Lincoln saw wisdom in this view and so waited for a military victory. On September 19th, the Battle of Antietam gave Lincoln the victory he needed. Goodwin continues in her book, The victory, incomplete as it was, was a long-awaited event that provided Lincoln the occasion to announce his plans to issue an Emancipation Proclamation the following January. On September 22nd, he convened a cabinet meeting to reveal his decision. At this cabinet meeting, Lincoln told Uh, those present that he had made a vow to himself and to Almighty God that he would free the slaves. The Emancipation Proclamation reads, All person held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons. Near the end of the proclamation it says, quote, And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution, upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God, end quote. It was important for Lincoln to frame emancipation as a legal act under the Constitution. By using his emergency war powers, the president was able to push out the infamous Dred Scott decision out of the Constitution and re-enshrine freedom as the centerpiece of the Constitution. If Lincoln did not do this constitutionally, it would be very easy for the southern states to dismiss it in the future or see this proclamation as illegitimate. Lincoln showed great wisdom, courage, and resolve in pursuing emancipation in this way. The Emancipation Proclamation was, in fact, the vehicle that Lincoln used to relink the Declaration of Independence with the Constitution. This is what Editor-in-Chief Mr. Gerald Flurry wrote in his article, Lincoln's Fight for True Freedom. Quote, Lincoln linked the Declaration of Independence to the Constitution and showed an unbreakable connection between the two. Without the Declaration, there would be no Constitution, and the Constitution was crafted to realize the ideals articulated in the Declaration. End quote. It was this Declaration that allowed Lincoln to declare a new birth of freedom at the Gettysburg Address. Mr. Flory continued, Quoting the Declaration of Independence cut a lot deeper in 1863 than before, because that supported the Emancipation Proclamation, which Lincoln had passed on January 1st of that year. This declared some 3.5 million slaves in the Confederate States to be free. That changed the character of the whole war. Many people supported the Emancipation Proclamation. Slavery was a worldwide problem. The African authorities themselves sold their people as slaves. There was no better place in the world to pursue happiness than in America. Many people agreed with Lincoln and wanted to eradicate slavery, quote. The Emancipation Proclamation was a turning point in the war and made it a fight for freedom, a fight that would see the sacrifice of hundreds of thousands of young Americans who spilled their blood in order to restore the truth that all men are created equal under God to the Constitution, to the Society of the United States, and to our current generation who enjoy these freedoms. This anniversary that happened 160 years ago is important to ponder because right now the freedoms in America are under attack. Yet during his lifetime, Lincoln actually revealed the cause of why freedom was being lost to the United States during the Civil War and even in our day today. In his second inaugural address, Lincoln pointed out that slavery was a sin against God and that God was cursing our nations because of our sin. It is isn't a coincidence that after the Emancipation Proclamation, that after Lincoln vowed to God that he would free the slaves and end slavery in America, that the tide turned against the South and the Union started to win the war. Just as America was cursed with civil war and an erosion of freedom, So today are we being cursed because of our sins against God as a nation. This history points us back to God who gave America all these blessings. And that the only way to remain a free people is to look to the God of the Bible, to look to the example of Abraham Lincoln, and to realize that true freedom comes from obedience to God's law. That is the ultimate lesson of this history of the Emancipation Proclamation. Mr. Flory wrote in that same article, quote, Lincoln made clear that emancipation was an ideal the world ought to teach and uphold and even fight for. He called slavery, as it was widely practiced in America, a sin, because God called it a sin. That is clear in the Bible. God's laws show that God does not intend people to be owned by other people. He wants all men to be free. His law is a law of liberty, end quote. And on this anniversary, it's a good opportunity to learn about this history and to learn about the God of the Bible and why America is facing so many curses today. To learn more about all this inspiring history and prophecy, please read our free book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy.
0: Thank you very much, Abraham. It is uh, wonderful to remember this history. We've been talking also about Britain's history in eliminating the slave trade. These nations went to enormous lengths to rid themselves and the world, really, of the evil of slavery. Um, I'm, I'm reading a biography of Abraham Lincoln right now that tracks how he developed his moral steel politically. He was always against slavery, but... It took a lot of wisdom and courage to find a way to free the slaves and to do it lawfully within the bounds of the Constitution. But I really wish that all Americans, all Britons, uh, would look back at this true history and take inspiration from that rather than being uh, allowing themselves to be led around by these people who want to reduce our history to only our mistakes, only our sins. You have these people today that are desecrating statues of Lincoln. They're tearing them down because they they say he was racist. It's really jaw-dropping. I feel like knowing the history protects you from these radical agendas.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, looking at this history, especially the Civil War, uh, if if you're American, but any country, um, because you realize just how much sacrifice went into preserving the freedoms that we have today. Uh, Just the civil war is still the the bloodiest war in American history. Um, And just the amount of of sacrifice and even with Lincoln, the amount of effort he had to go into to um, ensure freedom was there in the right way. Because uh, if he didn't do it lawfully, it would be easy for it to be seen as illegitimate. Um, for it to be cast aside by the next generation after he was gone because um, and as I think uh, editor-in-chief Mr. Flory has pointed out Lincoln sacrificed his life for freedom to free the slaves just as much as the soldiers did who fought on the battlefield um, so I think understanding this history um, why these freedoms are so important to us um, does like you said it's, it's a bulwark that history this Understanding the past is a bulwark against these radical ideas that uh, That were being taught today that people are teaching today in schools to give away our freedom To do away with the past when it really should help us feel grateful for it, but also um, Study how to fight for freedom the right way and really value the Constitution
0: Yeah, that's a great point Well, we've been uh, talking with trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau about the 160th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which is tomorrow, September 22nd. Look for his article at thetrumpet.com, 160 years since America's new birth of freedom. Thanks so much for bringing this to us, Abraham.
3: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: It's time for today's Last Word. I want to give a word to all the dads out there from the father of the 26th president of the United States. Theodore Roosevelt was a true family man. He said he had the happiest home life of any man whom I have ever known. Even when he was president, he dedicated himself to providing for his four sons and two daughters a rich, enjoyable childhood. What made him such a success, both as a man and as a father? A huge part of it had to be his outstanding relationship with his own father. Theodore Sr. was a successful businessman, but he gave generously of himself to his children. He was warmly and openly affectionate. Young T.D., as he was called, adored him. He later wrote, I was fortunate enough in having a father whom I have always been able to regard as an ideal man. Young T.D. suffered from severe asthma. His loving father chose not to coddle him. Instead, he challenged him to work, to endure, and to conquer. He transformed a balcony of their home, not into a sick bay, but into an open-air gymnasium filled with athletic equipment. He challenged his son to endure the hard drudgery of making his body strong. With his father's encouragement, T.D. embraced the challenge. Theodore Sr. worked to give his children experience and adventure to stimulate their imaginations and broaden their horizons through horseback riding, hiking, and swimming. This man expanded his children's world. He gave them confidence and a taste for adventure. He strengthened them physically and mentally. He was a model of activity that stoked their ambition and their ability to embrace a challenge. Theodore Sr.'s children genuinely enjoyed his vivacious personality, and they knew they were loved. Shortly after T.D. entered college at Harvard, he wrote his father, "'I do not think there is a fellow in college who has a family that loves him as much as you do me, and I am sure that there is no one who has a father who is also his best and most intimate friend as you are mine.'" After he became president, Roosevelt wrote this about his father. Unconsciously, I always find I am trying to model myself with my children on the way he was with us. Theodore Roosevelt Sr. devoted himself to raising a man. The results speak for themselves. He raised a man who not only became president, but also a dedicated father himself. That relationship made Theodore Roosevelt into the true man he was. Look at your own son. What sort of man are you making? You first need a vision of the man you want him to become. Meditate on the God-given role of a man, leader, provider, protector. Study the qualities of true manhood, self-discipline, righteousness, responsibility, resolve, courage, sacrifice then work to exemplify those qualities so that you can give your son a model of manliness next look for opportunities to instill these traits in your son build his physical body build his mental strength work together and show him how to enjoy work instruct him to accept responsibility for himself teach him to own up to his actions and not make excuses Teach him right from wrong. Teach him to stand against the crowd when he has to. Teach him to have godly confidence and godly humility. Help him overcome self-centeredness. Teach him to identify others' needs and to seize opportunities to benefit others at the cost of benefiting himself. Teach him to see the big picture, to see things from God's perspective. Set your expectations high, then encourage him enthusiastically for every inch he rises in reaching for that bar. Spend real time with him so he can watch you, emulate you. Time together creates occasions to teach. The job is difficult, but you don't have to do it alone. You just need to give God opportunities to use you to shape your future man. Years later, Theodore Roosevelt said this of his father, The thought of him now and always has been a sense of comfort. I could breathe, I could sleep when he had me in his arms. My father, he got me breath, he got me lungs, strength, life. What a blessing such a strong manly presence gives a boy. Be that presence in the life of your boy. Build the relationship that will guide him to godly manhood and godly fatherhood. Joel Hilliker and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour you can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at the thanks to our contributors Jeremiah Jacques Mihailo Zekic and Abraham Blondeau thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production I'll leave you with this thought from Moliere it is not only for what we do that we are held responsible but also for what we do not do thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour until next time keep watching your world To Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.